Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations about building and marketing products and building the businesses behind them. I'll be digging deep into best practices, war stories, and hot takes to try and inspire you to build the right things, build them right, and get them to market effectively. If you want more of that in your wallet, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your favourite social media platform and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we head back down under and talk about product management in New Zealand and cover it all from indigenous representation in tech, CPOs without product management backgrounds, product owner feature factories and much more. We reflect on sales-led versus product-led organisations, what to do in the face of scepticism and some of the ways we might turn companies from one to the other. We also reflect on whether New Zealand's really down under at all or whether it's at the southeastern corner of a flat earth just north of the ice wall. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Anthony Marta. Anthony's a product and delivery coach and product leadership consultant, occasionally curmudgeonly cyclist and biannual dance contest organiser. Anthony's working hard to bring in good product management practices, product culture and empowered product teams, not only around the world, but doubling down in New Zealand as the chair of Product Aotearoa, a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to nurturing, connecting and increasing the impact of product professionals in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Anthony's also a former electrical engineer, so I'm sure he's well-grounded, somewhat neutral, but a real live wire. Hi, Anthony. How are you tonight? <laughs> oh dear. That, okay, that, that I didn't expect the the electrical engineer pun. Well done. That, that was fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm fantastic here this morning, Jason. <laughs> I remember my physics teacher once coming up to me in a plug wiring lesson and saying to me, "Night. That is the unsafest plug I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> oh dear. All right. Never let you. Never let Jason wire the house then. Exactly. <laughs> So, first things first, you're involved in a number of things, Mm -hmm. but let's start with the day job. So, you're a consultant. You seem to have been embedded with a fintech or financial services company called Harmony or Harmony Mm -hmm. for about a year or so now. So, are you consulting alongside that? Or is that sort of your main gig at the moment and you're going to go back to the consulting afterwards? Yeah, so I kind of do a hybrid sort of role. So, Harmony's the day, I call Harmony the day job, product and delivery coach there, which involves working with their product management team coaching them, helping them out with practices and processes, and then help and also working with the engineering team as well, kind of basically being an agile coach for the engineering team, but through a, a product management lens, which I find a sort of really interesting kind of angle to, to take with them. It's sort of a bit more practical, I reckon, my personal opinion. <laughs> so that actually started out as a consulting engagement and kind of they, they decided that, you know what, this is actually a full-time role that's really useful to their business because they, they really like to invest in their people. So that that kind of expanded to, to three to four days a week and then I do sort of other random consulting and the other one to two days a week so that's kind of working with startups working with basically actually I was talking to somebody on Friday and and I kind of describe it as I, I want to have the opportunity to help influence companies on how they do product management at the right moment so that in a year's time I don't have a product manager in the community come to me and say oh, I'm working for XYZ company and it's terrible and I think oh my god if I just had the opportunity to put my aura in at the right moment, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad environment for them. Ah, so that's interesting, kind of course correcting at the right time rather than when it's too late, which is yeah. obviously very agile as well, which yeah. is obviously what you'd expect from an agile coach. But with Harmony then, is that quite a big company or is it still fairly small and agile itself? We're small by world standards, middle-sized, I think, by New Zealand standards. So about, about 70-odd staff, 
five engineering teams. Basically, they're very technology-focused companies, so a lot, lot of financial services companies, yeah, because we, we do personal loans, that's our product. A lot of people do that with humans, we want to do it with machines. And so we have so engineering is actually the largest part of the organization and why it's it's their it's their kind of biggest investment. And we you know, real live machine learning in production, unlike a lot of companies who just talk about <laughs> machine learning, we actually have have some really cool algorithms actually in production, which is it's 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 a cool place to work. It's yeah, they're on a very interesting kind of trajectory. But the delivery manager tends to suppose maybe a slightly complicated delivery mechanism in the sense that you have to have someone there to actually kind of make sure all the pieces come together. Is it that kind of delivery manager or is it a little bit simpler than that? I would describe the role as kind of team wrangler. So as I said, this, 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 is, this is a temporary thing. I'm just, just doing it for a couple of months while um, I cover for somebody who resigned um, a little while ago. And we, we have a, and actually we have a new hire just, just locked in last week. So I'll be here in a couple of weeks time. So I can, can pull back from that and go back to, to being a coach again or full-time coach, I'm just doing it part-time right now for them. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty common in New Zealand to have a delivery manager. The role is actually officially called product owner because reasons. <laughs> and that's that's a long story. We can get into the whole product manager, product owner thing later. Yeah, we could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's basically it's sort of wrangling the team, getting everybody working and sort of moving in the same direction helping manage dependencies, working with, we have, a, we have one of these roles per Scrum team. And then so it's working with the other, the other teams and anything that's a dependency. And also, you know, with my kind of coaching hat on, it's actually an excuse to get really hands-on with the team and kind of learn learn their foibles and whatnot, which is going to help out the, the coaching stuff that I'll, I'll revert back into later on. Yeah, that's fair enough. But when it comes down to the consulting, which you're still doing alongside that, maybe a little bit less than you were before, because obviously you've got this taking up a lot of your time. You've touched on really wanting to sort of get in early and course correct. Make sure you're setting product managers up for success, which which again, we could talk about in a bit. But does that mean that you explicitly don't work with, for example, really big enterprises or or big professional service firms or that type of company? Or do you kind of work for anyone who comes along and try and do your best to try and transform the best way you can? Well, I hate to say the latter because that makes it sound like, oh, I'll just do anything. But <laughs> <laughs> Done for hire, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, yeah, as I said, it, it's about trying to have influence on, on the organization. And, and a lot of it is because of, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to do the best by the community down here and actually set the community up for success. So it's, you know, it's, it's less about earning the money that kind of helps, <laughs> but it's more about trying to, you know, trying to actually set companies up for success. It's Kind of interesting in New Zealand, and you know something we can get onto it a bit later around um, you know the, the the maturity of product management down here. But it has been identified by us in the community, and also by some of the government organisations down here that it's one of the things that's kind of holding New Zealand industry back a little bit. That we we have a lot of a lot of really great ideas. There's a lot of amazing innovation that comes out of New Zealand. A lot of really innovative stuff. But the commercialization aspect, the product market fit, the actual, and, and then once a company get, we, we have a, a bit of a long history of companies that have like a smash hit and then they <laughs> kind of go through this arc and kind of die because they're not evolving, they're not moving with the market. And so that's a bit where I look at that and go, you know what, if I can have an influence on that, I'm, I'm setting the community up for success. I'm setting sort of New Zealand Inc. up for success as well. Well, let's talk about your efforts in the community then. So I know you're the chair at Product Aotearoa, which is a not-for-profit aimed at promoting product practices in New Zealand. So I guess the first question is, how did you get involved in that, aside from just your passion? I mean, like, how did you specifically get involved in that? And what are some of the initiatives that that organization is currently promoting in New Zealand? 
Yeah, so word on the names. Aotearoa is the Māori, so Māori are the indigenous people of New Zealand. Um, so Aotearoa is the Māori name for for New Zealand. So that's where that comes from. And we wanted to reflect the you know the the indigenous you know, the indigenous people of the country and, and our name. So kind of how that came about. So I got involved in in what became Product Tank Auckland five six years ago. Seems like a long time now. Yeah, usual story. Got dragged into doing a, a talk. And then sort of helped them out as a volunteer for a little while and, and then eventually kind of ended up leading it with a, the guy who was leading it previous to me and who'd formed, formed Product Tank or, or was, was known as Product Management Auckland back then. Ironically, he was moving into consulting and decided his consulting gig was, uh, was getting too busy. So he kind of went, Anthony, here, catch. Mm, shit. What, do I, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> and so we kind of grew that. Auckland's always been very active in the product scene. We've kind of been quite noisy. And noisy internationally as well, because we wanted to, you know, we were down here in the corner of the world. So, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that if we if we get some really good speakers, some really good knowledge coming to New Zealand, we wanted to make sure we could grab onto it. So we've been quite noisy globally. And that, and that sort of led to us joining forces with Product Tank Wellington. And there's another product management group in Christchurch. So it's the three major cities in New Zealand. And so we sort of collaborated on and off with them, the product management and marketing meetup group. They're not a product tank. Um, down in Christchurch was set up by somebody I used to work with. Inevitably in New Zealand, everybody knows everybody. There's like one degree of separation in this country. It's crazy. <laughs> so we're all, we're all linked. We've all worked for the same organizations. And so we spent a lot of time collaborating and then, and then kind of thought, well, maybe we should do more about that. We ran an unconference about a year or so ago now and and actually, it, it, the product Aotearoa had its genesis in a very practical problem, which was, oh, we run a conference. We need to handle money. Uh, we need to set up an organization for that. And then we thought, well, actually, you know, well, we've had all this collaboration across the country. We were kind of naturally working together anyway. Let's set up an organization that kind of reflects what we're doing in our meetups, but at a, at a New Zealand kind of scale. So we, we very deliberately set it up to be New Zealand wide. We're not aiming it to be a global organization. We kind of feel like there's enough of those at the moment with the, the, the minor products and the, you know, the, the other organizations around there. We very much want to be, we don't want to spend our time con- competing with any other organization. We want to connect and uh, collaborate and add to the, the global organization of, of you know, keeping people in product together and, and doing amazing things. But you touched on it as well. You're kind of down in the southeast corner of the flat earth right so about to fall off the edge (laughs) (laughs) just near the ice wall yeah so time zone wise a bit of a disadvantage especially when it comes to getting some of these top speakers i mean has that been an issue for you or have you always managed to kind of work out something and find something that works for everyone it's kind of funny we actually end up crossing over with most time zones uk and europe's a little bit of a problem but um the us and, and asia we cross over with the US in the morning, we cross over with Asia in the, the afternoon and evening. And so time zones have been less of an issue. And a lot of us work for global organizations, like, you know, for the last 10 years, or even actually even before that, I've been working for organizations that are in different time zones. So we're just kind of like, meh, we're used to it. <laughs> but where we actually started with was, was more about actually just making sure that we could grab speakers when they came to New Zealand, because most people, if they come to New Zealand, they come here once. And that's it. <laughs> We're so blimming far away from everywhere, you know, 20, 26 hours minimum from, from Europe and, and the UK by plane. So, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we would, we'd be able to grab them when they were here. And so that was, that was kind of the genesis of being noisy. But lately, what we've found, except for when I cock up time zones because of uh, daylight savings, <laughs> like, you know, morning talks work quite well for us. So it allows us to kind of vary the time that we have talks for our audience. 
Um, if we want to do a morning talk, we can get someone sort of on the US East Coast or even Pacific and in the you know UK and Europe as well. If people don't mind being up and up, up late in their evenings, like like you are now, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. And then you know if, if we do something in the evening, that enables us to bring in a speaker from Asia or Australia. Yeah. So the time zones kind of work well. As I said, it's more about actually just people knowing that we exist. <laughs> that's, that's kind of been our main challenge. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair enough. And I think that it's like you say, as long as you're being noisy and you kind of keep on banging that drum, then you mm. you're probably doing quite a good job there. But I wanted to touch on it before I forget to touch on it, and that's because it's a really important subject. And you talked, I mean, you mentioned yourself before, like the idea of kind of getting more indigenous people, for example, into the product community. So I'm assuming that means there's kind of a lack of numbers at the moment, like not that many Maori people in the product community. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Maori and Pacifica, um, so Pacifica people from the Pacific, Samoan, Tongan, Cook Island, um, are hugely underrepresented in technology generally um, here in New Zealand. It is, a, it is a real significant problem. We're quite lucky and in, in through, through the various axis of diversity here, male, female, we're quite balanced and I'm, I'm actually quite proud of that. You know, our meetups are attended often by up to 50% so 50-50 male-female mix, which I'm, I'm actually really happy with. Yeah, and, and that's been you know with things like having morning meetups to suit people who are working parents and things like that have, have really helped with that. Ethnic diversity, I'm I'm you know as a as a Pakeha or European um, New Zealand, I'm used to being the the minority in any engineering team that I work in. It's it's, it's very it is actually very diverse down here because we're a very very migrant based community, so a lot of Indian, Southeast Asian people. But yeah, Māori and Pacifica make up sort of I think five to ten percent or fifteen percent of the country down here, and that that percentage is not reflected in our community at all. I, I think I know one person of Māori heritage who's a product manager, one no two Pacifica people who are in product, and that, and that's kind of it. And and it is it is a real issue. And you know what what we've found is that. It's, it's a role model problem. Pe- people from those communities just don't view technology generally as a career path. And, and that's kind of really interesting for product and, and UX as well, actually, is that, you know, product and UX are very creative disciplines, but people in those communities, the, the Pacific community in particular is a very creative community. They're very known for their performance art and things like that here. But people think that technology is all about pounding away on a keyboard. And so they go, they go, yeah, that's not for me. And so that's actually one of the things I've been trying to personally do just, just generally is sort of going out, out to the community, particularly to, to younger people and sort of saying, you know, hey, hey, um, technology is more than just people pounding away on keyboards doing, doing math stuff. You know, there is actually some real, real creative artistic aspects to it. And that, that to me, I think getting that message more out into those communities is, is going to start to help. And then, and then just, you know, we are actually, we're starting to see an emerging Pacifica tech scene down here. I'm working with a, a startup at the moment helping them out with with product who are they're entirely apart from me they're in all pacifica and they've sort of brought together a network of people who from the pacific and they're trying to put a, a health tech product to help their community basically and so it's you know how can we use that as a pathway people see this and then realize it's done by people like them see for me um <laughs> and that you know start, start to generate that wave of you know hey this is actually something that i can get into so do you think the tide is slowly but surely turning or do you think there's still quite a significant effort to undertake before you get anywhere near? I, I think a bit of both. Like it, it is definitely turning. The, these you know, organizations, as I said, like the one that I'm, I'm working with now are starting to emerge. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the tide's way out there right now. Like it's got a long way, that, the long way that it can come in. Right. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and fingers crossed that efforts like yours, and I'm sure other people are also putting efforts in. Hopefully some of these will start to get a bit more interest in certain communities and start to beef up their representation a little bit. So yeah, fingers crossed for that one. So we touched on it earlier before, but how is the product scene in general in New Zealand? Like you touched on it a little bit around how maybe it's slightly lagging behind some of the thought leadership, you know, some of the classic Silicon Valley and other tech hub places but is it really that far behind or do you feel that with organizations such as yours for example it's really kind of coming up do you think that sort of thinking is really bedding in now it, it's a real mix i would say the, the product community here is is pretty mature by, by world standards talking you know talking with people who are working overseas all, all of the problems that we encounter down here in new zealand are the same problems that everybody encounters globally <laughs> obviously uh, our talent pool just isn't as broad as other countries and that's just purely a numbers thing small country, 5 million people. So proportionately, it is, it's, it's a small community. And that means that it's, you know, it's hard to find new talent. It was actually why I ended up getting involved in meetups in the first place was I was trying to hire at the time. And it was like, well, these people don't exist. We're going to have to get out there and, and create them. <laughs> so, so the community is, it, it is it's a very energetic community where I think per capita, Auckland and Wellington in particular, we're actually one of the biggest product tank meetups globally um, but on, a, on a per capita kind of basis. So we have a lot of enthusiasm and engagement in the community here. So a lot of energy, a lot of passion. Where we're struggling is, is kind of in two areas. So first area is leadership. Chief product officers are pretty thin on the ground here. You know, lead, leadership at the exec table is very thin on the ground in New Zealand. That's really, that role has really only started to come up even in the, the past couple of years. And what, one of the things we're noticing, and one of our product Aotearoa team has been doing a bunch of research into this, is that a lot of people who have the title chief product officer in particular have not started as a product manager. They've been, yep. uh, they've, they've been an exec coming from, okay, interesting, maybe it's not something you can problem globally. I don't know, we were still doing our research on this. So. <laughs> we can talk about- yeah, I don't, think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's unknown. And again, I don't know if this is something that's replicated everywhere, but certainly in the UK and in Europe, I'm well aware of many examples of CPOs or CPTOs, even just, yeah, they're just from different parts of the business or they're either a very technical person kind of just looking at the product as well, or they're a quote unquote industry expert that's just sitting there and kind of using Some, their industry knowledge expertise. and expertise. Yeah. And that's fine. But it's not 100% fine. I mean, it really depends on the person and like how much they're going to be open to some of the product management thinking and how much of a product thinker they are. And you always worry that the people that are working for these people, like the product managers that are working for these people, are necessarily having the best time, having to justify decisions to them in terms that they don't necessarily understand because they've never done the job before. So it's definitely an interesting one. And I think it, it can work, but it really depends on the person. Yeah, yeah. So, so down here, that's absolutely a problem. That probably the head of product cohort is tends to be more people that have come from a product manager, but they tend to more be people who don't necessarily have a seat in the, at the executive table, and that that brings with it a whole set of challenges as well. So yeah, so so that that sort of top level leadership having you know knowledge of what product management really means is is problematic, and that that then leads into a problem in the community is that, you know, people are being ultimately, you know, their, their ultimate leadership and their organization doesn't really quite understand what it is they do. It doesn't understand what <laughs> yeah. good looks like. And, and in a, you know, relatively small community that where we're relatively distant from people who can sort of go, you know, that's what good looks like. That's kind of problematic. So that's one of our, one of our key challenges. And, and the second challenge, and, and this is, the, these things are kind of related, is the product owner role slash cohort um, <laughs> down here. And thank you, banks. A lot of that has come from the banks here in New Zealand. They tend to be the the you know, the larger employees of, of 
people who are being product owners who are really just delivery managers. You know, they are just really just working on the backlog for their particular team. They don't have a say in strategy. They don't have a say in, in the outcomes that they're trying to get. They're, they're you know, they're project managers, slash delivery managers by another name kind of thing. And, and, and so people are told, you know, do this role, but they don't get a say in their organization. And that's one thing in particular I'm pretty passionate about trying to do stuff about and actually get those people to get that cohort to realize, you know, hey, there's more to your world than just doing what the scrum guide says. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and then there's a connection to, you know, and, and it's a connection to leadership thing because in, in fairness to, to our leadership cohort, they don't know better. They, they don't know what yeah, no, it exactly, possibly yeah. look like. So it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not people being, you know, this is not happening deliberately. This is happening because we, we just don't, you know, I mean, we have some examples of what good looks like, but we don't have enough. But then as a consultant, you're going into some of these companies and presumably trying to fix that. But it doesn't sound like an easy thing to fix, especially if, as you say, they don't really have a, an idea about what good looks like. And there aren't really any examples that you can show them that particularly resonate with them. And they're never going to necessarily trust what good looks like. So how do you as a consultant go in and try and tackle that as a problem? Yeah, with difficulty. <laughs> the short answer to that. I mean, it's part of the one of the reasons why I ended up getting into consulting in the first place was actually a bit of a frustration of trying to, trying to create that change internally. I worked in, in a couple of roles where I was trying to be that change agent from internal, and you, you get frustrated. You know, you're trying to do the day job, you're trying to change the organisation. It's you, you, you're bashing your head against the wall sometimes, and so yeah. it was like, well, actually, I'd rather be invited in to to try and make that change. Which is a slightly better situation because you know it's the organisation has admitted that they have a problem, and so you sort of started from that base. But even then, you know, as you, as you say, it's, it's still a challenge. And so the way I frame it is, is not so much like you know, hey, you need to do good product management. It's like, well, why? Well, what do you, you know, why could this be important to your organisation? And the one thing I come back to is, is longevity. You know, I mentioned it before. We have a bit of a, a history of organisations here that they've had a great, you know, they've hit product market fit once they've got an amazing product out they even amazing set of products and they kind of you know gradually go through this arc of that product drifts off you know the, the the market fit kind of changes the market moves the product moves technology moves whatever competitors come into the space and they're not doing good discovery led sort of product management which means that they don't see it and you know hubris sets in and eventually they kind of they kind of crash there's a you know, historic example here that i usually cite of a company called navman who they were big in, in GPS units way, 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 way back in the day when an independent GPS thing was, was what you had in your car and they were super expensive and whatnot. Great product, world leading at the time. They were right, very much right place at right time. They built an, an amazing, you know, very large organization by New Zealand standards. They were really built an engineering cohort, actually. There's a lot of people who've worked for or worked with that organization over the years down here. But they kind of didn't keep moving with the market. They, they got bought out by an American company, very large, very process-oriented, classic project management type approaches, didn't move with the market. And eventually they died because they drifted off product market fit. They never kept up. They never reinvented themselves. And to me, that's the example of if you've got good product management in the organization, they should be the ones who are always kind of looking to challenge and reinvent the organization to keep moving with the market and make it for a really, really sustainable, really good long-term organization and stop this. You know, I don't know why people view it as inevitable that, that organizations go like startup to scale up to enterprise to death. <laughs> why is that inevitable? <laughs> why, how can we make that not inevitable? 
Yeah, well, it's the old innovator's dilemma, right? Like, everyone always talks about Kodak mm. or Blockbuster in these conversations as well. But I think it's really interesting that you've got like a, you've got a local version of that that you can tell, which surely must resonate to a large extent with many of the CEOs and exec teams that you talk to, right? Yeah, I think that the challenge is, is it, is it doesn't, it doesn't. Like, sometimes they go, you know, this is, as I said, sometimes it's just like, well, enterprises just go through that arc. That's just normal. You know, <laughs> we, we, we just try and sustain it as long as possible kind of thing. And, and of course, you have to realize that, you know, founders and funders can have different incentives to perhaps what, you know, people in, in the, in, on the ground and product can have. And that's something product people need to be more aware of, actually, as, as a bit of a side yep. note. So that's one part of it. And another part of it is like, well, we'll, well we're different. We're not like that. You know, we're, we're, we're amazing. And so there's a bit, of, a bit of hubris that comes from that. And so, so the way that I often get around that, particularly if a company's got a bit of scale, is look at how your organization gets stuff done right now. And I, and I will put money on the fact that organizations don't get, you know, that I'm talking to like that. They're not getting stuff done through their org chart, right? You know, it's, 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 yeah. the, the, there's the people who in the organization who are the ones who really understand how to get outcomes for the customers. And maybe they have the title product manager or maybe they don't. And then it's saying, well, Look at how that works. How do you really get stuff done for your customers? It's because, you know, this organization, this group, and this silo, and this silo all get together and have a bit of a conversation about what the right thing is for the customer, ignoring what the org chart says, and then they get some stuff done. And maybe that's how you should work. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, maybe, maybe that's called a value stream. And, you know, and, and it's, it's starting getting people thinking, you know, how do you, how do you really get outcomes for your customer? Like, how do you really get the stuff done that matters? And, starting to shift the orientation of the company towards that. Yeah, so you've touched on that, which is one way you might want to get in. But what are some other things that are kind of on your bucket list of things that a company should do to become better at making products? Discovery, <laughs> in, in a word. <laughs> so I, I kind of I was having this conversation with an exec a little while ago. And, and um, for, so this, actually, this is with, with Harmony, their, their chief product officer. I get a great example of someone who hasn't come from a, a product background, but he does, he really gets it. He's, he's a great guy to work with. And he was, he was saying to me, like, I've got this amazing idea, you know, I think, I, 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 and I, I really don't want to, and we were, you know, and, and good on him because he was having this conversation with me. He was not just kind of landing it on his team. <laughs> and he's like, I really think we should do this, this thing, but I, but I don't want to be the hippo. I don't want to be going in there and saying, you know, we, sh we should, this, this is the solution. I said, well, okay. Have a conversation to help the team to understand how you got to that. Like, how did you go from problems that you saw through your eyes and you heard through your ears and solution that formed inside your mind? Like the, the bit that goes from one to the other. If you can teach your team how to do that, then you'll, you'll be able to trust that they will come up with more of these kind of solutions. And to you know, teach them that, but teach them that that short little loop, or even a long little loop, that you know, from eyes to brain to mouth kind of thing. <laughs> that's 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 the bit that they need to get into, and that's the bit that, that you need to let them kind of grow into. And so it's getting getting particularly leaders in the company to really shift out into that kind of problem space and go right. You know, I want you out there identifying the most amazing problems in the world and bringing your team into those problems, and then let them figure out the solutions. You know, don't don't just go in and say we should do one of those because you're doing, you know, if it's just your brain that, that's doing the problem solution conversion, you know, you're wasting 90%, 95%, 99% of the, the talent in, in your organization. And by the way, if we do that really well, we'll call it discovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess try not to call it anything for as long as you can. So people don't think that you're just mm. reading buzzwords at them. 
But obviously that example you just gave was a really good one and hopefully the CPO took that on board and went and did it. But there are going to be a bunch of these hippos and people that don't necessarily trust in discovery or just think that they've got the right idea already. Also people who maybe just sort of sit down and think, hey, that sounds like that's going to take a long time. And they kind of just want to keep churning stuff out because that's how they think that companies should operate. So have there been any situations in your career where you've gone out to one of these people, you've given them a speech very similar to what you just gave in that example, and they've just said, look, no, there's no way we're going to do that. And if that has happened, have you ever managed to win them round in the end? So I, I talk about the concept of war stories. And <laughs> there so you sometimes go. that conversation starts with the, yeah, but do you remember when? And you know, every, every organization has them. Every organization has that complete face palm of something that everybody <laughs> thought this was the most amazing thing ever. And they shipped it and it, it failed. You know, why? And, and it's something, I did. again, it's, it's kind of a New Zealand thing. We're so light on talent down here that just the idea of wasting any of it just grinds my gears and, and, and hopefully grinds <laughs> other people's gears. And so it's saying, well, let's stop, let's actually stop wasting our time on, you know, you remember when we built that thing and it just completely failed? You know, maybe we might want to do a little bit more background on this, on this first to try and try and bring people around. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, obviously you have to be careful with it because sometimes you're touching on sensitive parts of the organization. I mean, one of the big things there is to try and help them understand why it failed. It's not like, it's like, oh, it was a bad idea. And that sounds really, you know, really impactful to people. It's, oh, well, you know, and, and that bad idea was owned by somebody. And so therefore they're bad. Yeah. And it's actually saying, well, you know what? Actually, there's some techniques out there which would have helped us have not, not necessarily said that that person was bad for coming up with it, but maybe there are other ways that we could have come at that problem. There were other solutions out there that we could have considered and saying, you know, and saying, well, you know, hey, there's a structure to kind of avoid this and, and getting people to understand that kind of cause and effect that, you know, there's all these great structures and practices and processes that the product community have developed and how they could help with these problems as opposed to, you know, everybody needs to come up with perfect ideas all the time kind of thing, which is, which is how people who are sort of new or naive in their approach to product tend to be. It's like, you know, I'm going to have the most amazing idea possible and it's going to be awesome because I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah, and every single hit's got to be a home run, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And getting organizations to actually be comfortable that that's not the case. Like actually, if we, you know, the, the statistic I usually cite, and it's, it's a Google one, and I must figure out where the heck this came from, is that somewhere between 50 to 90% of all ideas that you put through an organization turn out to not have the impact that you expected. Yeah. And so that means if, if you're not knocking out that 90% or 50% or whatever it is at, at the early stage, you know, you're probably wasting that proportion of your, of your development organization. And is there a big sales-led culture over there still, like there is in certain parts of Europe, or is it very kind of, is it getting a bit more towards kind of product-led, everything going through some kind of process and not just sitting there doing whatever the sales team come up with? I'd, I'd, I'd like to say um, no, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so interesting characteristic of the market down here, we're quite dominated by B2B, actually. Right. Where there's not that much in the way of B2C happening in New Zealand, although we stay as we get sort of, consumer product or or consumer companies that are not traditionally product oriented like i did some work with a a large um, grocery retailer a little while ago and that was kind of interesting exercise there's that kind of b2c stuff spinning up where companies are really you know realizing the the place that technology plays in their and their non-technology products but yeah other than that software organizations software product organizations were very much dominated by by b2b down here everything from sort of like the zeros of the world who everybody knows you're obviously beta beta smb 
through to we have a very very large health tech company down here who who are dealing with governments and, and large enterprises. So that is actually really common. And that tweet that I, I sent you the other day about uh, Rich Marinov and his duck horse, you know, we, we I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still have the picture of the duck horse from when Rich was down here in New Zealand doing a talk. I, since I can visualize that slide in my mind and he was describing <laughs> the organization I was working for at the time to, to a T that, you know, there's companies trying to trying to take the candy of, you know, cust- big, large customer. And, and then for that particular organization, we had about 20 customers. So very, you know, very large sort of million dollar kind of contracts. And, and when a you know one of twenty who's paying you a million or seven million dollars a year says I want a one of those, it's really 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 hard to say no. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and and, and it's a you know, scale again scale problem for New Zealand. And the the, you know, the the company that I was last head of product for, we had one extremely large customer, and they were ninety five percent of our revenue. And and it, it's a very 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 tough Yeesh. situation to be in as a product manager. Yeah, that was that was kind of interesting. So yes, there's a lot of that going on, and and in that situation, you know, it's not so much the sales led is bad. It's like it's just tough. <laughs> like yeah, you know, I, I feel for the, the executives in that situation, and you know, the the, the company I was referring to with the the, the the twenty odd customers, they had gone through an IPO, and the IPO, the what a lot of the IPO was actually about trying to fund product led development because they recognised that just doing that sales led development was unsustainable. So. I'd say that most of these companies recognize the, the financial model of product versus services and, and recognize that particularly in New Zealand where we don't have an infinitely scalable workforce, which is where the, that services, that sales ed kind of, you know, it's the only way it succeeds. It, it, it's, it's tough to make that transition. It really is. Um, and, and we do have a number of companies that are going through that. There's just a discussion that was kicking off in the community the other day where, you know, other people having exactly that same thing. And, and it was even earlier on in the stage, it was actually, how do we productize our services? How do we make our services more easy, you know, basically more repeatable so that we can start to move to a more product-led mindset in, a, in our organization? There's some companies that, that have done it well. I worked, used to work for, for Fiserv. They, were, they bought out a New Zealand startup called Emcom. Emcom very much had built some, some quite bespoke products for a number of customers and or bespoke implementations for a number of customers, and they managed to move to a product mindset basically through the sheer bloody mindedness of, <laughs> of the guy who who ended up being VP of product. I think he had, he had, a, had a tough time. They're, they're one example that had done it successfully, and I was a product manager for their SaaS platform. That was kind of one of the one of the outcomes of that, where they'd really found the common factors, doubled down on them, and and had quite a very profitable business as a result. And so, and, and that was a good example to them of like, well, actually. You know, here's the advantage of the standardization. It can be actually wildly profitable. So usually, you know, long story short, usually what I do when I'm, I'm talking with companies about that is I just show them the financial model. I sort of show, well, okay, services, you know, services revenue or sales lead revenue where we just kind of build what the customer asks us to. Here's our revenue. Here's our cost. Our cost and our revenue lines kind of, they both go up together. Hopefully they're separate from each other and that's our margin. Sometimes if you get it wrong, the you know the, the the cost line goes over the revenue line, and, and badness ensues. You know, if if you're doing product, you, you you're doing you you've got that hockey stick going on, and so you you, know, you might start up with some um, upfront investment, but you know, hopefully you you're going to hockey stick over time. You know, your cost line will go up as you scale, but your revenue should go up significantly faster, and that kind of gets people gets executives going. Oh. Okay, now I understand why yeah. this is advantageous, and 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 every time I go to that sales led model, I'm ratcheting up my my cost line, and I'm potentially hitting my margins. Yeah, I guess it's all about trying to land it in terms that I understand as well, with you know, regards to the money, basically. Mm. 
But talking about hockey sticks, who's your prediction for the next big unicorn to come out of New Zealand? Ooh, good question. Um, ooh, that is that is a tough question, actually. There's there's a lot of really interesting things happening here in legal tech, actually. And and partly I have a little bit of a bias towards that that space because my wife's a lawyer. Oh, there you go. I, I look at a lot of the stuff that she Objection. does. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I look at a lot of the stuff that, that her and her firm does and go, you know, there's there's so much stuff that can be just commoditized there. Yeah, And, and so yeah. I think, you know, there, there's a, a burgeoning sort of legal tech scene. But it's, it's interesting, actually. We, we seem to have, we know, we, like in New Zealand, it's, it's relatively uncommon for companies to compete with each other. We're all, because it's so small, we're all doing kind of different things. But there's about three or four companies in the legal tech space down here. Previously, we had, we've had a couple of virtual human companies, and there were actually two in that space. Yeah, if, if you'd asked me this question a, a year or two ago, I might, have see, I might have said the virtual human space. That one's kind of gone interesting. But yeah, def, definitely, I think legal tech, there's, there's, there's some real cool stuff happening here. Well, we'll keep our eyes open and invest at the right time. And where can people catch up with you after this if they want to chat more about any of the burgeoning tech scene and tech and product scene in New Zealand, or maybe commiserate over some war stories? Yeah, no, definitely. Plenty, no shortage of war stories in that area. No shortage at all. So uh, LinkedIn or Twitter is usually the best way to get a hold of me. There is literally only one Anthony Martyr in the entirety of New Zealand. So if you search for me, I'm pretty easy to find. Sometimes, unfortunately, easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then also, you know, if, if you're part of the Minor Product um, Slack community as well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm part of that too. So trying to you know, keep, keep an eye on what's happening out there internationally. All right. Well, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes and hopefully won't get too many late night or early morning calls. I'm sure I will anyway. (laughs) So that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you spending your time and taking me through some of your war stories and some advice for anyone listening here to maybe try and avoid some of those wars themselves. Obviously we'll stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. All right. Thanks very much, Jason. Really enjoyed it. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>